Same shit, different Dumbledore. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast Special Film Edition, the Harry Potter Movie Club for recasting directors. I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. Messrs. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs are proud to present the Marauder's Map. We owe so much. Black was vicious. He didn't kill anything. He destroyed it. Mm-hmm. A finger. That all was left a finger. Enough talk, Remus. Come on, let's kill him. Wait. I did my waiting. Twelve years of it. In Azkaban. You mean we've gone back in time? Yes. This is not normal. Expecto. Patronum! What the bloody hell was that all about? I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And we're finally doing this! We are talking about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the movie. Directed by the, I think, pretty sexy, actually, but whatever, it doesn't really matter. Directed by Alfonso Cuaron. There will, in this podcast, be spoilers... Mostly about how many fucking clocks are in the movie. Also, <laughs> evidently there will be cursing. Yeah, so I mean, I'm not sorry. No, I'm not sorry at all. You've been warned previously in previous iterations. Also, don't have this be your first episode of The Quibbler. Although, you know what? If you're listening for the first time, no, like, welcome. Do what you need to do. But maybe listen to the book ones first. Because we're going to power right through anything having to do with plot here. Assuming that everybody is super duper up to speed. Because we have been reading this book for months. 12 years. In Azkaban. In Azkaban. So before we talk about the movie, we are going to do a thing that we've been promising to do for a hilariously long time. Which is a little baby mailbag. 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 Mama ma what we is that have, from? I feel like we should have a theme or something for the mailbag. Oh, I thought that was a real thing. No, that you I was were doing. literally just making it up off the. I know the Blues Clues one. No. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me wanna wag my tail. When it comes, I wanna yell. Mail. It's not yell. It's whale because whale oh. rhymes with <laughs> mail. I'm sorry. I haven't seen Blues Clues in a long time. I know, okay? but I, you know how rhymes work. Didn't the guy who played the Clue dude get busted for something? I don't think so. That seems like one of those like, like urban, urban legends. Legend, like about how yeah, like like Mr. Steve. Rogers. Is his name Steve. Yeah, Steve. Mr. Rogers was a saint. Those are all rumors. The kids at school used to say that he like committed like war crimes in Vietnam and had like human teeth like necklace that he wore on on Mr. Rogers. Nobody said. I that. I know that's not true. Nobody said uh, that. You're <laughs> no, they that. did. They did. The kids at school. There was a kid. Who swore up and down that Mr. Rogers had, like, committed crimes against humanity. That kid committed crimes against humanity. <laughs> Mr. Rogers was a saint. Why are we talking about Mr. Rogers? I, I'm sorry, because we were talking about Blue's Clues because we were talking about mail. True. So, point being, you guys have sent us wonderful missives over the last several months. And so we're going to um, visit a couple of those because... You have answered some of our queries, you have put forth really interesting theories of your own, and you've been really nice and smart and cute and, um, hi, we love you. So we're gonna read from a couple of emails we've gotten and then address a couple of things that we've seen in 
reviews on iTunes, which have all been lovely. Keep them coming. But we just want to like call out a couple of funny or interesting things that y'all have said. So first of all, we are going to read... We are going to read from an email from a listener named Kirsten. Hi, Kirsten. I hope that's how you say your name because it begins with a KJ. So I don't know. It's like Fjord though, right? Email us again if we're saying it wrong. And it, the email is just called Quibble with an exclamation point. That's a good subject line. Yeah, I love it. So she has weighed in on why wizards use basically medieval technology. So I'm going to read a little bit of this and we can um, maybe talk about it a bit. So Kirsten says, I have a theory as to why wizards have such antiquated technology still. Sometime in the past, possibly medieval times, since that seems to be when technology stopped progressing, the wizards and muggles made a clean break from each other's societies. I think it would make sense that wizards were mistreated or possibly persecuted by muggles for being different or strange. That is actually something that J.K. Rowling has written about Mm -hmm. on Pottermore. So yes, I think you're totally right about that. At that point, as an act of protection and a defense mechanism, the wizards retreated into their own society slash culture and made every attempt not to interact with muggles. Because of this mistreatment, hostility probably built up, leading wizards to disregard and distrust everything invented by muggles. As time went on and muggles and wizards carried about in their own cultures, distance from muggles in personal life and in culture became valued as wizards saw wizard and culture as superior to muggle culture. This, no doubt, fueled the superiority complex that some wizards, specifically pure-blood wizards, maintain. Wizards prefer candles and quills because of a superiority complex and a belief that those pieces of technology work well, so why would they ever adapt or adopt technology such as electricity or pens from a culture that mistreated wizards and witches and didn't see the value in their skills? I think that that's a really good reading of wizard technology, actually. Yeah, thanks for the email. I guess the muggle world is kind of coming back around to wizard world. Uh, They'd fit right in, in, like, Brooklyn with their quills and... uh... It's true. I mean, also, <laughs> timey, yeah, it's kind of an old aesthetic. Old-timey technology. I hear it. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's an aesthetic. It's inter- The idea of them shunning muggle technology is interesting. And then forgetting that they were shunning muggle technology. And just and then thinking it just sort of better. became yeah. a way of life. Well, I mean, it makes sense to shun the technology of your oppressors because how? why would you trust that their technology isn't, like, designed to oppress you? Right. That makes total sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a super good email. Baller points all around. So the next email is from a person named Florian, which like, if that's your real name, that is unbelievably cool. If that's just a name you're using because of Florian Fortescue, that's also awesome. That's also good. Either way, I love it. It's the subject of the email is the Dementor's Kiss. P.S. I am Florian Fortescue. P.S. Come eat my ice cream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be really cool. So um, Florian has some thoughts about why the Bogart Dementor does affect Harry, even though it doesn't seem like the Bogarts take on like the full qualities of the thing that the people fear. So he says, hey guys, in your last podcast, in parentheses, I love the show. Thank you, Florian. You were ruminating on how the Bogart works. The Banshee scream should kill, but it doesn't. The moon doesn't force Lupin to transform, and yet the Dementor affects Harry. To continue your theory that perhaps the Boggart only affects people to an extent, it doesn't fully assume the thing that it's impersonating or whatever, I bet that the Boggart Dementor couldn't actually perform a kiss. And because 
our listeners know what's up. He has capitalized kiss because it is a proper noun. Kiss. <laughs> you guys rule. It still affects Harry, but it can't reach its full amount of evil the way an actual Dementor would. This would align with the fact that the Banshee doesn't kill and the moon can't make loop and transform while still making sense as to why it affects Harry. Just a thought, Florian. Love it. Totally agree. And yeah, I bet the Bogart can't do a Dementor's Kiss because that's a fucking crazy thing for anything to be able to do. That would make the Bogart way too powerful. Yeah, yeah. it would. I mean, that would mean the Bogart was basically all powerful. The Invincible Bogart. Voldemort should have just got a Bogart. Or been a Bogart. Yeah. But yeah. you can vanquish a Bogart with a ridiculously easy spell, so. <laughs> oh, God, I can't believe I laughed at that. <laughs> Next is an excerpt from an email from listener Beth, who said, You guys talked about the ethics of paintings that contain sentient beings, which made me think about Plato's understanding of art. Beth, I think, is an art historian. Um, this email, I just want to preface, is incredible. You are a genius. Okay, go on. He thought that art was an imitation of an imitation. The metaphysical form or idea of a chair is the most real version of a chair for Plato. Carpenters mimic this true form of a chair when they build one, and painters imitate an imitation. If art is an imitation, then the artist doesn't have to know anything about their subject. Therefore, their depiction of that subject is untrustworthy. A person who has never been in a war could paint a battle scene, for example. An artist didn't have to meet their subject to paint their portrait. How do we know they depict their personality correctly? How do we know that they aren't just depicting the good parts and glossing over the crazy parts? Have you ever seen a sculpture of Caligula? He was fucking hot, just crazy as shit, and you can't see that in the bust. The idea can be used to talk about portraits in the Wizarding World. They are described as shadows of their subjects, a mere imitation. They are a poor substitution for the real thing because they are only a superficial representation. Even if a wizard artist would be able to imbue the painting with the basic personality and some memories, they would not be able to create a painting that embodied the whole person. Wizard paintings are limited to the properties of paintings, which are flatness, and therefore only provide a two-dimensional depiction of its subject. So, if a portrait of Plato and Dumbledore were in the same room, Plato would yell at Harry not to trust Dumbledore because he's merely an imitation of Dumbledore. His portrait probably only contains the good parts and forgets to mention that Dumbledore is unconcerned with the safety of his students. And then Harry would have to question the validity of Plato's portrait's claim because he can't be trusted because he is only an imitation. Total mindfuck. Then Harry would have to get Hermione to explain the whole fucking thing. (laughs) I love everything about that email. A, I think that's actually a really good read on what the portraits do which actually does sort of fall into our idea that they're basically artificial intelligence they're like constructed by their painters not just like the visage the Mm -hmm. um the actual art but also the kind of like intelligence that they're given comes from the knowledge of the artist rather than like the essence of the subject interestingly that's a problem that we're facing in our nascent attempts to create actual art artificial intelligence right now like all these algorithms that kind of run our world are only as smart as the people that program them they come with the same biases and, well yeah uh, a only is smart spots. right yeah. a only is smart but b only as like empathetic and only as like open and inclusive so yeah all these biases and really specific ideas about the world are built into ai by 
humans and I think similarly you're right all of the characteristics of the sentient paintings are built into those paintings by their makers they don't own a piece of the soul I think you're totally right Beth although maybe if the painting of Dumbledore has been stripped of his worst attributes they should just have a painting run the school (laughs) yeah but then nothing fun would happen I'm coming around on Dumbledore right now I'm gonna uh jet right back into hating Dumbledore in book four for absolutely sure <laughs> but um, i'm having a soft spot moment for him um, uh, i want to if they just had a painting of plato to weigh in on uh, the proceedings that would be excellent that would be amazing or like one of socrates and one of plato and then they could like shout at each other socrates would just ask a bunch of questions anyway i love that that is an email about harry potter plato caligula and it says fuck a bunch like Girl, that is our sweet spot. Wow, yeah. That's like right in our wheelhouse. Speaking of right in our wheelhouse, I also want to call out another listener email. Um, I'm not going to say this young lady's name because I don't think she's technically old enough to be listening to so many curse words. But her mom lets her, so like, you do you, girl. But she wrote in to tell me that I remind her of Hermione, except I swear more. Which I just want you to know that that's literally my life's purpose realized. I'm, I peaked. When I received that email, I peaked. Because there is nothing better that I as a human being could be than Hermione Granger with a foul mouth. Also, a teen thought you were kind of cool. Which Oh my god, god bless the teens. Teens I, are the future of America, man. Also, like... If a teenager thinks something you're doing is good, it's probably good. They're the only ones whose judgment I trust. Let's be real. So thank you for that. And then there's a couple of things that came up in reviews that we just wanted to like call out. One is that a couple of you actually mentioned that Peter Pettigrew is a good counterexample to our rant about Slytherins being the like Slytherin house being the only house of shitty people. Yeah. So yes, I think he's a good example of that. At the same time, we talked about last week, maybe two episodes ago, we talked about how the difference with Peter is it's he's not like ideologically a death eater. He's just like like a coward. Yeah. He's not brave though, which is the Which is Gryffindor. The Gryffindor maybe, attribute. Maybe Peter Pettigrew was like mishoused. The hat never admits a mistake though. Never admits a mistake. Mm. No, I don't know. I think he um Peter's an interesting character because he is He's a bad guy, but he's he doesn't strike me as a Slytherin. Gryffindor and Slytherin are like the sort of yin and yang to each other, right? And if you take some Gryffindor qualities to their furthest extent, they become Slytherin qualities and vice versa in an interesting way. No, I think way. that's absolutely true. And I also uh, think that there you are... See that with, you certainly see that with Snape and even like James to some extent. Well, because James and Snape are sort of each other's foils Mm -hmm. in a really fundamental way and they are the sort of like to go back to Beth like the platonic ideals of their houses right and I think Peter Pettigrew is but he's not a Slytherin because he's he's not like cunning or conniving right he's just sort of like runs blindly into evil acts on instinct right which is not necessarily how I would perceive I think Slytherins are smarter than that honestly but the Gryffindors are very like gut driven they're emotional decision makers that and Peter really does embody that even if he's not brave he definitely is somebody who makes choices not as much based on his intellect 
what there is of his intellect. Very little. Which is why Hermione is also kind of like a funny fit for Gryffindor. I mean, mean, enough to frame a man for murder. That's like not super easy. That's true. You're right. No, that's true. Anyway, I think that it is a really good point. Um, And I don't think we've ever really argued that Slytherin is the only house that bad people are in. It's like a rectangle in a square. All Slytherins are bad. Not all bad people are Slytherins. Not all Slytherins are bad. Most <laughs> Slytherins. 99% of Slytherins are Hashtag not all birds. Slytherins. Okay, anyway, yeah, Peter's a good example. And then one more thing, which um, I hope that you, person who wrote this, don't go and take your five-star review away because your review was super duper sweet. But whoever suggested that LeBron James is a Slytherin is insane. Maybe not insane. insane. They don't have to put on full, no, full I'm not glass. Gonna, you're right. Okay. I can see how, okay, you can see how. You're right. Totally fair evaluation. You are not insane. You are beloved, and we are glad you are part of this family. You are incorrect. <laughs> and I'm going to share the proof, which comes from my little brother, Kenson, who is, honest to God, a LeBron James scholar. Like, <laughs> Kenson has been memorizing things and watching LeBron James since he was like six it's like the first thing he ever really talked about like a lot was LeBron so um Kenson says he thinks LeBron would be a Gryffindor which is what we said or Ravenclaw let me read why this might just become a podcast about LeBron James or The Rock oh The Rock my dad likes The Rock too yeah we learned that this weekend we also we also learned that The Rock would have sort would sort himself into Hufflepuff because we uh, looked it up. Yeah, we did. But anyway, this is about LeBron, not The Rock. And Actually, eventually... I have similar feelings about LeBron and The Rock, which is partly just I think that they're really nice and really tall, and I find that satisfying. <laughs> so this is what Kenson says about LeBron being a Ravenclaw or a Gryffindor. He says, I would say Ravenclaw because LeBron's super smart and has probably the best basketball IQ, basketball, basketball, IQ in the game right now. I would say Gryffindor because LeBron is called King James and his signature is the brand for his brand is a lion. That's actually a really good point. I hadn't even thought of that. Also, he is humble and probably does the most for his community than any other athlete. He's paying for thousands of kids in Akron to attend college if they complete his program from elementary school and graduate high school. It's his I Promise Foundation. He willed the Cleveland Cavaliers to win their first ever NBA title and the city of Cleveland's first sports championship in 52 years. They call him the chosen one since he's from Cleveland and is considered the best basketball player since Michael Jordan. Also, he's never been in trouble with the law or ever cheated on his wife and she's been with him since high school. Many other athletes get caught up in the lifestyle. All in, he shows perseverance, courage, and bravery. So A, Kenson has just written a beautiful five-paragraph essay about LeBron James with a stellar conclusion. B, Kenson really loves LeBron James. So we're not necessarily endorsing like all of that fandom. I don't... All right, I'm going to call bullshit on the fact that LeBron is somehow humble because he calls himself King James. And that's fine. LeBron shouldn't be humble. Yeah, I'm going to call bullshit (laughs) on humility. But perseverance, courage, bravery... 
Yeah. Style, swagger. I think when people put LeBron into Slytherin, they're thinking back to the decision where he, you know, the famous, if you're not a, if you're not into sports ball, LeBron James famously spurned the Cleveland Cavaliers to go play for the Miami Heat for a few years, and he made it in this kind of obnoxious televised special, and uh, that was a very seemingly a Slytherin move, but I don't think so, because what he really wanted to do was learn how to become Animaguses with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh and romp around Miami Hogwarts. Yeah, I also think that that's a really Gryffindor decision because it's not, it wasn't a particularly, like, it was, like, we just talked about Peter, it was a gut decision. Yeah. Like, it was not, I didn't find it that conniving because he did it in an incredibly obnoxious way. And I think a Slytherin. It was a James Potter move, I think. It was such a James James Potter Potter. move. Oh, I totally agree. So, yeah, I think even his flaws are very Gryffindor. This is Kenson continues. To be able to go from poverty in the city of Akron to become possibly the, he wrote G-O-A-T, which is baller, but greatest of all time basketball player. And almost a billionaire athlete takes the traits of a Gryffindor. So, boom. I just mostly wanted to call out Kenson for knowing everything about LeBron. Michael Jordan, I think, is a Slytherin. Ooh, totally agree. Yeah, yes. And Michael, yes, I think Michael Jordan is definitely a Slytherin. And they're very different kinds of basketball players, too. Yeah. So, um, I'm sorry that I called this person out. I actually, like, I don't We're think that's... We're not calling you out, man. Yeah. It was a totally legit no. opinion. I think it have. was a legit opinion, and it was a legit opinion and an incredibly kind review, and genuinely, we thank you a lot for it. I just disagree about LeBron, but I have really strong opinions about, um, genuinely everything, so <laughs> that's that. So we'll do another mailbag. Um, I mean, the sooner you guys send us more mail, I guess the sooner we'll do another one of these. But this was really fun. Um, thank you for getting in touch with us and sending us your sweet, beautiful thoughts. We love having listeners. That's crazy. It's really awesome and fulfilling. Oh, my God. And you guys are so smart and interesting and funny. And who we I don't know what we did to deserve this. So one of our you. listeners modeled a haircut after Gilderoy Lockhart. Oh, I know. I laughed for like five minutes about that. And it looked pretty sick. Yeah, actually, also she looks like Gilderoy Lockhart, a.k.a. real freaking hot. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, you guys are amazing. Thank you for that. So now we're going to talk about the movie. So in this movie, uh, Harriet... No, we're going to do <laughs> We're not going to recap? Harry's at his house. He's under his sheets playing with his wand as the movie opens and we learn realize this is going to be about coming into young adulthood oh yeah it is an unsubtle visual metaphor but i love it it's a great opening Mm -hmm. and it's non-canon so it all it immediately sets forth that this is a director who is going to be making really specific and deliberate choices about a film right because if you were going to be a harry potter pedant you might point out the opening shot of him practicing lumos would technically not be allowed outside of school yeah i know but i think that's why i like this is that he is he's like stepping outside of the really 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 strict boundaries of the texts and it's a really it's a really that opening shot i love so much i know coming through the the warner brothers uh Logo. logo and the the new wand sound i don't how would you describe that sound the sound the wands make in this movie i can't describe the sound it's the like this whoom, yeah it's but how it, i would it, describe it yeah the whoom, so many little touches like that that uh just 
right out the gate, we have to say, I mean, this is by far the best movie of the series. Yeah, I would agree. I think... Although I haven't seen the others in a while, so... I, I like the other... I mean, okay, I don't love one and two. I think one and two weren't really trying to be movies on their own. They were, I don't know, like readers theater of the books that just like had big chunks missing. And the later ones are really, really exciting and well acted and great. But this is the this is a really singularly beautiful movie. Right. This is the only one where you're like outside of loving Harry Potter. This is still like a stunning film. Yeah. From the first few frames can automatically tell that it has like higher artistic ambitions. Than, oh, yeah. Than the and it has films. like a point of view. And I saw this film. I'd actually my sister read me had read aloud. Uh, Prisoner of Azkaban to me at this point in my long coming around to Harry Potter. So I knew the story, but I still wasn't quite sold on it. But uh, this movie definitely... Sealed the deal for you? Yeah, it got me to a point where I was like, okay, Harry Potter is pretty legit. It's so lovely. And the thing that's great about it coming, about this being the third movie of eight, actually, is that it sets kind of the visual tone and motifs and kind of aesthetic for the rest of the series. Like right. this is when the Harry Potter movies like get a look, and it's a great look. Yeah, with the yeah, the little the the wand the woo they change how the wands look. Uh, they do the sound design changes too. You're right. Yeah, the costumes are look a little bit more lived in. Every, yeah, everything it, everything looks a little less like a sound set. A soundstage. Uh, a soundstage. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna betray my total my like lack of cinematic chops here. Everything looks a little less like it's being filmed at. I guess Harry Potter World didn't exist yet, but you know what I mean. It doesn't it doesn't look very dis like kind of Disneyfied, even though you know it's it's Warner Brothers. It's not Disney, but no, I know what you mean it. Does, it looks less sort of costumed. Mm-hmm. It's less cutesy. I mean, to be fair though, we did talk about the fact that this like. This is a tonal transition in the texts too. Like right. this is a a much more grown up book. Yeah, and, and um, and so it's a much more grown up film aesthetic. Yeah, and there's much more world building. It feels like just in the little touches. Um, well, like I love that the Whomping Willow is this sort of like they keep returning to the him. I almost said because it actually kind of is like alive in the movie, um, and it has kind of a personality, which is like sort of like playfully sadistic <laughs> like it's kind of a cheeky tree but it really likes to kill but anyway like so the Whomping Willow has this kind of you return to shots of it over and over to kind of mark the seasons and there are these humorous little moments there's a lot of birds there's a lot of it's very like nature full that's an awful word it's like it's very lush you pay a lot more attention to the physical like landscape of hogwarts than you ever have before and mm-hmm. it's gorgeous yeah they make great use of the the landscape shots from uh scotland i believe like the scottish highlands oh my god like when he's flying on buckbeak over the lake mm-hmm. that's just such a beautiful scene i mean that would be a beautiful scene in any movie yeah there are a lot of really powerful scenes with no dialogue that aren't even described in the text. Yeah. So the screenwriter and the director, they, like you said, they really start making their own choices and going into different and interesting places while still maintaining a lot of respect for 
kind of the world that J.K. Rowling has created, but oh, also yeah. offering a unique interpretation on it that's not necessarily, you know, what you were thinking in the when you read the books. Or I, I don't know. It's very satisfying. The thing that it does that I like is it acknowledges that a movie and a book are different mediums and that you're allowed to do different things in a movie. I do think that there are some fans of Harry Potter who don't like how much this one deviated from the book. Which I think is fair, but I also think that you pay someone to adapt a movie so that it adapts. There are, are dialogue changes that fit the medium of film better. The one thing that they don't do that I feel like the um, the first two movies did was just kind of rely on people's faces to convey the like long inner monologues that are available in a text, and instead they actually like put some of that stuff to words. Yeah, like there's a bunch of conversations that happen to sort of reveal things that Harry is feeling where in in past movies I think they would have just showed him like you know crying or like gulping or whatever (laughs) I love this movie it's also funny it's very funny Uh, we like guffawed a few times yeah there are there are really 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 funny moments What, what, what are some moments that stand out for you well, this is actually a good transition into the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is the new Dumbledore actor. Because <laughs> the funniest moment in this entire movie to me is when Harry and Hermione come back from their crazy time traveling adventure and Hermione's kind of panting and she's like she's like, "It's done. We did it." And he looks at her and he goes, "Did what?" Good night. <laughs> and just With does this a little, sassy hand wave. He does wave. like a toodaloo wave as he like goes down the stairs. Um, I think it's really funny. So what do you think of New Dumbledore? This might this is becoming the podcast of uh, counterintuitive uh, or unpopular opinions with the slate pitches of uh, Harry Potter podcasts. Uh, sometimes, not always. I really like New Dumbledore. I think it's sad that Richard Harris uh, passed, although I'm glad he lived a long time. Yeah, it's not like he amazing was young. life and had a great career. You know, a lot of people I know know though, uh, Michael Gambone is not a very popular Dumbledore. And why I think, is that? Well, I think it's from a very particular scene in uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. They're all meeting in Dumbledore's office, and Dumbledore rushes in and almost like chokes Harry in the movie. He's like, "Harry, where did you put your name on that goblet, Harry?" Rah, rah, rah. And everyone's like, "Dumbledore would never do that." I don't know that. No, we he can... wouldn't. No, he wouldn't. He would not. Dumbledore would never manhandle Harry. He would like Dumbledore never like loses his cool. He's always like okay. So they. So, so that's a bad re- choice. So people really hate that. But I think in this movie he gives a great performance and he gets to a little. You know, and I, I like Richard Harris as Dumbledore. Uh, I like that Michael Gambone. I just respect as an actor that he didn't feel beholden to recreating. Uh, Richard Harris's role or his interpretation. And I think he gets to some of the the chaos Dumbledore, the chaotic good of Dumbledore. Yeah, as listener Misha has revealed, yes, he is chaotic good. Okay, I don't have a problem with Richard Harris as an actor. I actually thought Richard Harris was a profoundly boring Dumbledore. I think Michael Gambone is worlds better. Worlds better. I do, because Richard Harris is... He's a sweet old man. And his whole take on Dumbledore is this sort of like wise, all-knowing, hyper-present, really loving, sweet old man, which is not Dumbledore. And it's a nice character, but it's not the Dumbledore of the books. It might be the Dumbledore as Harry sees him. I know, but that's not what 
Dumbledore is. Hmm. I think Michael Gambone really captures the ways in which Dumbledore is like really morally ambiguous and behavior, his behavior is fairly bizarre. <laughs> um, and I think a good example is in Hagrid's cabin where the second go around in Hagrid's mm-hmm. cabin when Hermione and Harry are like watching from behind the pumpkins. By the way, the giant pumpkins at Hagrid's house are like an amazing touch. Hagrid's house is really, really nicely designed. Yeah. But anyway... So they're watching themselves try to escape without the minister and the executioner seeing them. And in the book, it's a really funny scene where Dumbledore is like, wait a minute, don't I have to sign too? And Michael Gambone just babbles in that scene. It's like really like Soda Voce. Like you can kind of not really hear them. Mm-hmm. Um, but little you get little snatches of it. Well, and so you hear Cornelius Fudge, who I also think that's a great, that that's a really well acted It's an part. excellent performance. Um, anyway, so Cornelius Fudge is like, oh, well, Dumbledore, you'll have to sign your whole name. And you just hear Michael Gambone go like, well, it's a long name. <laughs> and so I just, I think his sort of like chaos in his eyes, Dumbledore, is, uh, is much more effective. And to be fair, like Richard Harris died before you really got to see this character develop. So obviously I'm not going to blame Richard Harris for that. But I don't think his interpretation is as interesting as as Gambon's. And I also don't necessarily agree. Okay, I think maybe the physical manhandling of Harry is, you're right, out of character. Well, we'll get that in the next movie, maybe. But Dumbledore has rage. And I feel like you lack that entirely with the like sweet grandfather Dumbledore type performance. Like... There's like real passion and a lot of anger and rage in Dumbledore. Right. Well, we know he had a chip on it. Well, we find out later that he had a chip on his shoulder as a young man. Well, no, but even later on, like, I mean, Dumbledore, I don't know. He's a complicated character. And I think that this is a more complicated performance. Mm -hmm. And I do like that Michael Gambon seems like always edging into madness in this way that I find really satisfying in a Dumbledore acting. Right. I, I do, I love that choice on the part of the screenwriter where they come back and, because in the book, he's like, well done, mission accomplished children. Right. And in this one, he's just so. He's just like, toodaloo. So, yeah, so strange. He's very shady. <laughs> right, I really like, and the other thing is, I feel like these, this set of director and screenwriter like read the books and like, got Dumbledore a little more like they didn't make this like grandfather wizard character they made this total fucking nutcase who's in charge of a school oddly Dumbledore's not given a heck of a lot to do in the movie Mm -mm. um in fact many of his lines are actually given to Lupin in the final scene the final scene between Lupin and Harry which partly I'm sure is just for length well I also feel like actually a lot like some of that makes more sense coming from Lupin yeah. Like, Lupin is the one that has actually watched Harry develop as a wizard that year. Like, Lupin is the one that knows that Harry patro- performed the Patronus after, like, an, like a huge amount of effort. Lupin actually knows Harry better in this. So what do we think of the three, the three babies who are no longer babies? We're watching them grow up right before our eyes. I know. I'm so proud of them. I think all around, they're maturing into fine actors. Emma Watson, I think, makes the biggest leap between Chamber of Secrets and Prisoner of Azkaban. You can really tell in this one that she's going to become a huge star, and that wasn't necessarily apparent in uh, in the way that, like, it's really hard to tell with a kid, a like child. child actors. But uh, yeah, she just dominates this movie. Mm-hmm. She is really, really spectacular. 
I also think that Daniel Radcliffe grows a lot as an actor, but he still has a couple of really awkward kind of mannered moments. Like when he's like quote unquote crying yeah. in Hogsmeade after he finds out about his about Sirius Black portray, betraying his parents. Um, That's like a really bad crying scene. It's like uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's awkward for everyone. Um, Yeah, Emma is pitch perfect. And just she's like a woman in this. Like she really, really has that like full blown like actress fire. Rupert Grint is quite a charming comic foil. He is. He's adorable. He's actually, I like movie run better than book run. I find Rupert Grint delightful. (laughs) I think Daniel Radcliffe does a good job digging into Harry's kind of emerging young adulthood. Like the scenes where he gets mad with Aunt Marge, which is a fantastic set piece altogether. Oh, that scene is so good especially with uh, some of the special effects like the lights flickering it gets almost like carrie like and, and like all uh, the when all the um beads mm-hmm. fly off of her necklace and one of them hits Do- or hits um dudley and, an- and another clock a lot of clocks a lot of clocks yeah um and you, you know when he's face to face with snape and they're having that kind of icy conversation i think uh i think radcliffe handles those pretty depthly and it's like hard work. You're acting opposite Alan Rickman, like one of the great... And he holds his own, yeah. <laughs> performers. Alan Rickman literally just keeps getting better in these yeah. movies. Like what? And I forget who pointed this out to us. I think it was another listener. And I'm sorry, I, I'm not going to dig it up right now, but I'm giving you credit in my heart. Um, Movie Snape and Book Snape are really, really, really different characters. Is it Eddie? Maybe it was, yes. Yeah. Eddie, was it you? Um, Eddie's the best. On Twitter. Yeah. Said, yeah, Movie Twitter Snape. Twitter Eddie. <laughs> Twitter Eddie. Hey, boo. Said that Movie Snape and Book Snape are really different. And like, yeah, part of it is just that like Alan Rickman is such a magnificent performer that like Snape is just automatically a sympathetic character. And I think that's why he gets this kind of like anti-hero credit yeah. when I don't think he deserves it. Like, I don't think the book character deserves it, but... God, Alan Rickman is just also just such a smoke show. Oh my god! Um, it's an a it's a wonderful comic moment when Harry has the Marauder's map, and Snape just snatches it out of his hand and then says, "I've just confiscated a very dangerous document." To yeah, Lupin. that's I, another thing that we guffawed at. <laughs> I just I don't know what the deal is with Snape, but like. Book Snape also just is not sexy. Right. Like, that is not meant to be a, like, sex appeal character. Like, he is described as, like, pretty foul. And, like, you want to bone Alan Rickman. <laughs> like, straight up, you want to bone that guy. So that makes Snape you know, I, different, I think too. Snape isn't quite imbued with as much menace as in the book, too, because they just... Just for time reasons. You don't get all of the scenes of him being awful. Mm-hmm. Like, how does he even know to go to the tree? You know what they in do? The movie? You know what Alan Rickman does pick up on really nicely is Snape's latent sense of humor. Yes. Snape actually is pretty funny in the books. Mm-hmm. And Alan Rickman pulls that out really beautifully. God, he's good. Oh, I hope that he is on a beautiful cloud in heaven right now i'm we miss you terribly alan rickman i know so we have a couple of new grown-up performers too yes what do you think of gary oldman 
Gary Oldman doesn't have a lot of screen time. Um, he chews it up, though, when he's yes, on screen. Yes, he does. Weird, I mean, weirdly, he packs a lot of his performance into the moving poster, the moving wanted poster that is plastered all throughout the uh, the film on public spaces. It's so Which is funny. iconic now. It's, yeah, it's also so funny because I forget that that is from the movies. That mm-hmm. That is one thing, and I know I, like, bitch about people only, like, seeing the movies. But to me, like, that poster feels like canon. And it, I totally forgot that that's, like, totally a product of, like, Alfonso Cuaron's imagination. It, the, those posters are the spectacular. Set, I mean, you know, whoever, or the one set, of the designers. Well, okay, whoever came up with that poster. Yeah, yeah, those are iconic. And you're right. He's really um, animated in that, like, little, like, gif, essentially. So you get, you know, you see him. It's also funny that it is literally just a wizard gif. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's just, like, shouting in it. <laughs> So yeah, that's when Wizards invented uh, GIFs first. Go them. But uh, he does get the... I don't know. That's a tough scene because you know they have to condense it so much that it was almost. it's almost bound to be a little disappointing. Yeah. Just because, I mean, that's like 60 pages in the book. That's it two is. full chapters and, like and tons of... Exp- maybe 10 minutes. In the tons movie. of exposition. I don't even know if it's 10 no, minutes. No, it might be like five minutes. Um, so you just get like caught up real fast. Uh, to the point where I think these the book and movie are like perfect companions, but I'm not sure if you were just coming at this movie. It's it's visually beautiful, and I'm like there's a lot to appreciate, but I'm not sure it would make a ton of sense. But anyway, back to Gary Oldman. I kind of I got ahead in our conversation a little bit. Back to Gary Oldman. One thing he does do well, he, he's got the good the, the like madness thing going. Azkaban has unhinged him, mm-hmm. and he acts shady the same way Sirius does when they first meet him in the book. And, and you know, he's, he's Gary Oldman. He's like a pro. One thing I really like, and this is like more important um, in Order of the Phoenix, Gary Oldman and David Thewlis, who plays Lupin, have really, really nice chemistry. Yes. They are excellent in every scene they're in together like they really just like play off of each other really beautifully and their friendship is very believable from minute one that Mm -hmm. they're together on screen like when they embrace in the shrieking shack that's like a really moving little moment they just have fabulous chemistry yeah they pack so much of the history that has to be left out of the screenplay they do into their gestures and they like they look like two people who have touched each other before oh yeah no they're very not in a slash yeah, but you, you know way. what I, you know like in a no, bro, no, like I a know. bro hug way but i mean a little in a slash fic way maybe um I, no they just they do they totally just like unsaid act all of yeah. that really really intense emotion so i think they do really well together um timothy spall we only get to see for like a minute at the end but he's peter pettigrew and he's fabulous bang up job Ugh, he's such a rat man mm-hmm Great, great job. It's funny because he's a pretty regular looking dude, but he is just horrifying. Well, he has like, yeah. He has his, the, like, uh, we're, his, we're making like weird rat faces. Little, and his little hand gestures. Mm-hmm. Ugh, it's awful, but he does such a good job. He does. Uh, there's a line in Prisoner of Azkaban where Rowling writes, he still had something, the look of a rat, like about his face. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, no, they totally capture that. Mm-hmm. And and David Thewlis as, uh, as R.J. Lupin is phenomenal just great mm, he's every really scene touching. he's in is 
He knocks it out of the park. Hilariously, he and Harry just go on hikes. <laughs> like, multiple times in this movie, um, conversations that happen. And it's visually, like, it's really satisfying. But there are all these conversations that happen in Lupin's office in the book. And in the movie, they're just, like, in the fucking highlands, like, looking out across this, like, beautiful expanse of ground. And it's, like... Anyway, they're just, like, weirdly on hikes together a bunch. Tom Felton got banging. That's weird because at this point, like, he's still a teenager in this movie. He plays Draco Malfoy. Mm-hmm. But I think he's another one of these characters where he's, like, a straight-up baddie in the books. But you cast these, like, super sexy dudes in these <laughs> roles. And it's like, I mean, Bellatrix Lestrange. I'm not going to, I'm I'm not going to be um sexist. She's another example of being, she is horrifying in the books. And she is also just very very sexy in the movies but i'm ahead of myself that's in book four um book five actually oh that's in book yeah. five holy we cow here for a while okay well anyway that's like a problem when you have hollywood actors and actresses to cast is like you get smoking hot draco malfoy and you like kind of want to kiss him on the mouth rather than <laughs> punch him in the mouth and you know it gets complicated. He, I had such a crush on him. He's great in all these films. He's wonderful. He's such a good Draco. He's really cute. Yeah, he na- he nails that part. He and Snape, he and Alan Rickman are why you get these like ships. Like people ship Hermione and Draco not because of the books, but because Emma Watson and um, Tom Felton together would be hot. So for the non millennial listeners, what's sh- what's shipping? Oh, like combining. Um, like obsessing over characters as like a love match, alternative pairings, relationshiping. Yeah, no, because you can ship right. pairs that actually exist. Okay. Like you can people ship Ron and Hermione versus like Ron and Harry, or versus well, Ron and Harry is also one, but like a lesser, yeah, a lesser disgust. I think if anybody ships the the gay couple that people ship is actually Harry and Draco. That's what shipping is. It's just imagining love pairing or like romantic pairings but people a lot of people ship draco and hermione and i think that's just because the movie versions of them are so cute yeah that makes sense oh one more thing um about how the actors change the characters robbie coltrane hagrid just like has his shit a lot more together (laughs) he is not as messy he seems really competent in this yeah he's upset but hagrid has a nervous breakdown in the book basically about Buckbeak, and he has this very restrained grief, but intense scene of grief. But he's not like falling apart when no. they go over to the uh, but it's still a good performance, it's a great performance. It's just, it's just a really different Hagrid, it's yeah. a much more, and he's also a much more competent teacher. You know, who has another great scene who? is the actor who plays Arthur Weasley. Short scene, oh, he's they're awesome. In, they're, he was great in Chamber of Secrets. Uh, it's a short scene in the Leaky Cauldron. And actually, there's a few scenes in this movie where the conversations in the film are more intense than they're rendered in the book. Right. It it, it feels like um, where he yeah, where he's warning Harry about uh, Black is gonna come try to kill him, and it, you know there's the poster of Black in the background. And it's just it's a really just great moment. Yeah. This is the Empire Strikes Back of Harry Potter films. Absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. I don't know what that means. I'm just agreeing with you. 
<laughs> no, I do know what that means. You've seen The Empire Strikes yeah, Back. Yeah, it's the best one. You've only seen half of Return of the Jedi. I fell asleep. I think so you did I not think... fall asleep. Well, yeah, I guess no, you did fall I did asleep. fall asleep. Oh, my God. Well, that's how we know that Empire Strikes Back is way better because I super fell asleep in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> um, so you had a couple of like images or kind of just like scenes that yeah, you thought were and I've already, beautiful. I've already touched on a lot of them. Oh, one moment is where they're trying the candies that make them sound like different animals. It's like 30 seconds. It's nowhere in the book. Mm-hmm. But it's something that could have been in the oh, book. Oh, yeah, no. And I, it, there's barely any dialogue. They're, they're trying these candies, and it's kind of like reminiscent of like, I don't know if you're like doing helium or something with your like 13-year-old friends or yeah, maybe experimenting with something. I don't know, like you nicked... Like a Budweiser or something like that. You never did anything bad. Wow. Okay. You are you are using images from like Judy Bloom novels. <laughs> this is very like then again maybe okay. I won't. They're smoking weed in their four. No, but po- it's they're it's much more like the helium yeah. analogy where mm-hmm. they're just like doing goofy shit. Yeah. Uh, and just uh, the kind of bonding between it's them being boys. The Gryffindor boys. The it's, Gryffindor. Yeah, it's, it's the Gryffindor. Neville. Yeah, it's Neville, Ron. Seamus. Seamus and Harry. And Dean, right? I don't remember, but, uh, and it's part of this, like, you know, the growing up motifs and, uh, you know, becoming like a teenager. But then the camera pulls away from the window and we see it, like, splattered with rain and there's this happy scene inside and it pulls out to show the castle surrounded by Dementors. So there's this looming threat. Of the outside world, and it makes Harry's, like, childhood, or his, like, joy, so, like, just this, like, kind of flickering in the window, and that it's, like, so fragile compared to all the forces that are set against him. Like, the darkness that's out in the real world, and the weight of, like, fear and terror that exists for him, and that is a really powerful moment. I agree, and... It's like, it honestly could be the moment that defines, like, the whole series. Yeah. It's just, like, Harry in, like, a lighted room with his friends, like, about to be attacked by shit. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, that, you're right. That's, like, one of the best, just well, little it, visual moments in the whole Or just about, it's about life in general. Like, it's yeah. not even about, like, Harry. Like, there's this, I don't know, you have to find your, a lot of the books, a theme is, like, Harry finding these, like, places of, like, warmth and safety. Yeah. Amidst... But you're like right, a, he does that, dark he world. pulls that out visually mm-hmm. really nicely there. And, yeah, he just visually captures a scene that I think really says what the book's about and the series uh, in general and something that's not written uh, right. in the books. Uh, I like Which the, means it gets to condense right. a lot of things in the books that do point to that theme with just, like, that one. Yeah. Another thing I like, I like the night bus. Oh, I really like the night bus scene. The night bus scene is very Men in Black. Where there's, you know, there's the hidden, like, world that the normals don't know about. And, uh... That's like, so funny. freakish things happening on the streets of London. Yeah. Unbeknownst to all. Yeah, the normies. Um, it's also very funny. Yes. Which... Stan Shunpike is excellent. Yeah, really good. Ernie. He's a murderer. <laughs> Ernie has... They really nail like wizard infrastructure because Ernie has all these extraneous crazy levers and pedals that he's pushing to do various 
crazy magic yeah it really captures the kind of the bullshit of wizards um technological choices yes and uh, you know you have to and it renders really satisfyingly a memorable scene of the book with the beds like crashing up against the sides of the vehicle i I, i've always loved the i guess we're there's a lot to call out in this movie i love the scene where Fudge is kind of imperiously talking to Harry, and there's just this quill that is, it's like either taking dictation or, like, filing documents for him, and he says, it'd be best if you didn't wander at the end of a scene, and the quill just, like, abruptly shifts to the next line, and I, it's really, I don't know, the sound of it, it's really satisfying. All the clocks, the clock motif is great foreshadowing, because... There's going to be time travel later. A wizard is reading A Brief History of Time when Harry first walks into the Leaky Cauldron, the Which Stephen Hawking book. awesome. <laughs> that is an awesome detail. That's just like a little weird Easter egg of a detail. I love the idea, though, that like maybe this wizard worked on the time turner. Or like, I also love the idea that there's like wizards that are kind of like low like it's like a more of like an arthur weasley character Mm -hmm. who is like low-key kind of obsessed with like muggle science yeah yeah that's a nice little tiny moment so there's the stephen yeah there's the stephen hawking book oh and snape has i don't know if i like this or not i'm just gonna call it out snape uses a slide projector (laughs) at one point i do like that yeah lupin uses a record player yeah there's more muggle technology in this one um, I like when Lupin uses the record player because it's in the Bogart scene, which is a really, really, really good scene. Um, we're going to come back to the Bogart scene in a second. So we talked about the possibility that this doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. So let's talk about just like call out a couple of the things that are like really missing. The Marauder's map just kind of plops into Harry's lap You never find from, out. From Fred and George. You never find out who wrote it or who Mooney, Wormtail, etc. are. Right. It plops into his lap randomly in the book, too. Yes. But it, like, what you, the thing that you actually don't find out in the movie is, like, why Lupin knows what it is. Yes. He's just like, oh, I, I, it's a map. And Harry's never like, uh, why do you know that? And so you never learn the identities of Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, which is a bummer because it's, like, the most important revelation of the book, kind of. So, um, you also don't find out about them becoming animaguses. Right. You just know you that. You sort of see them becoming animals, but you don't know why or like how. Well, and we so learn what like, an animagus is. Kind but. of. In one, like half of a line from mm-hmm. Hermione. But you don't learn that they became, you don't learn the, the history of their being able to transform into animals. So it's also confusing because it's like, okay, do all wizards like turn into yes. animals? If, if you if you hadn't really been paying attention to that one line of dialogue, and, and if you never hadn't had read any, the books, yeah, if you had yeah. no familiar familiarity with the books, you'd just be like, "What? He's a dog? He's well, a wizard too?" I think the assumption you would make is that all wizards have an animal that they turn into. They're all just animorphs, yeah. basically. You would basically think that Harry Potter was the animorph, the with animorphs. magic. Mm-hmm. Um, you also they've rewritten the serious betrayal story so that the Fidelius charm isn't in it. Which, to be fair, that's a lot to explain. 
Yeah, but it doesn't take that long to explain in the book. It's just like he was a secret keeper and it means you store the secret inside of you. Right. It's not, it's like two lines of dialogue. Yes, it's uh... And it it lessens the impact of what actually happened because you're like, oh, he gave you away. No, he gave you away. Yes. But it's more extreme than that. It's an intense betrayal in the books. It's a much different kind of betrayal than Mm -hmm. just like telling Voldemort what you know. Like, because being the secret keeper is this, like, sacred oath. Yes. So they take that out, which is fine. That doesn't really impact the plot. It just makes it, like, less affecting. And you lose the serious loop in James' backstory. Like, you don't get mm-hmm. to connect those dots as easily. Luckily, Gary Oldman and um, David Thewlis, like you said, are amazing together. So you, like, get it emotionally, but you don't learn that stuff. There are a couple things that make more sense in the movie than in the book. Yeah, like he takes the invisibility cloak with him the first time he goes to Hogsmeade. The only time in the movie. Overall, like Harry uses the invisibility cloak a much more appropriate amount in the movie. And he sees Peter Pettigrew on the Marauder's map. Right, which is one of our biggest questions is like, why has nobody seen Peter before? (laughs) And Harry sees it like the first time he studies the map. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is a device to draw him into the hallway to have an encounter with Snape, which doesn't happen in the book. But, but you know, it makes it foreshadows way more it. sense mm-hmm. that somebody would see Peter. And I actually really, really prefer, I love that scene where Harry's like, just so you know, Professor, I don't think the map works. I saw Peter Pettigrew on it. And you get to see Lupin's face go like white. Mm-hmm. That's a really nice exchange that the screenwriter came up with that was not in the book. The Boggart scene also makes more sense. Yeah, because they make them actually do funny things. Yeah, the book, I don't know what J.K. Rowling was thinking because the things that she, like, assumes are funny that the Bogarts do are just, like, more scary. Except Pavardi in the movie must be, like, have a really fucked up mind because she turns the Cobra into a far scarier clown. Oh, it's terrifying. What? But, like, when Ron puts the um, spider in roller skates, it's very funny. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that scene in the movie because it's also like he puts like jazz on the record player. So it's this like really fun kind of jazzy like kids like doing fun stuff. Kind fun of teacher. Scene. Yeah. So each movie mini we've had just like a what the fuck was the deal with that. <laughs> um, movie one, it was Professor Coral's iguana. He was just holding an iguana movie in a random two, scene. Movie two, it was Harry continuously caressing people's hands in this really creepy way. So what is it in movie three? There's this kid that we haven't seen before. And anytime some shit goes down, he just has this, his only purpose in the film is to say ominous shit. Yeah. Ominous unnamed Gryffindor. Yeah. So when Trelawney sees the Grimm in Harry's cup, he reads from the text. He's like, it's a, he, he reads aloud to the rest of the class from the textbook that like what the grim is it's like it's one of the darkest omens in our world yeah and then later when black has been cited they see in the paper that Sirius black has been cited he's already slipped past the months hasn't he who's to say he won't do it again that's right black could be anywhere it's like trying to catch smoke like trying to catch smoke with your bare hands Unnamed Gryffindor. It's also like a little weird because he's one of like three black people in the entire imagined wizarding world in this movie. 
he's got kind of a magical negro like vibe that I don't love because he doesn't get a name. He's not any he's not like identifiable as any of the hog of any of the actual Gryffindors in the books. Yeah, he's not he's not Dean. No, Dean's in it. Dean's right. a different kid. <laughs> and he's just this like sinister but kind of like cherub faced little black boy i mean and, he reads those lines with authority no i mean he's wonderful like the actor is really good it's just kind of weird to me because there are so few like characters of color in harry potter to just have this like random kid saying these like super fucking ominous things and then he just we never see that kid again he is not in any of the other movies to my knowledge yeah i don't he think has so. two lines and they're both <laughs> like truly bizarre lines <laughs> like man it's you like always a make weird choice. <laughs> it's like, geez, Jeremy, you always take these moments and make everyone feel way worse. I just yeah. gave him the name Jeremy. You made it weird, name. Jeremy. Yeah, you made it weird, Jeremy. I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a true <laughs> WTF. Um, another just like quick note is that there's this very famous quote that people like put on their fucking Instagrams all the time that Albus Dumbledore says, "Happiness um, can be found in the darkest places if we just remember to turn on the light." I think. It's something like that. That's not in the books. That's in this movie, and the screenwriter wrote that for Dumbledore. I just think that's weird, because it's like people really, 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 really strongly associate that quote with Albus Dumbledore, and as far as I'm concerned, it's like not canonical. It's it's a nice like shot, though, because like he's like waves his hand over the candle and then like waves it back on. I don't know. No, I think it's a really it's nice, a nice moment. moment. It's a good line, but it's just weird that that, like, people fucking have that on, like, their yeah, tombstones, it's, basically. It's, like, caught on. It's, like, this very, very emblematic Harry Potter quote, and it's, it's like, from the movie. I don't know. I guess that's just, like, me being, like, a purist, and I'm like, J.K. Rowling didn't write that. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I guess she didn't write she a lot did. in this. No, I know, but I mean, she... For it no, being I know I mean. like, yeah, the, it's weird that's it's like weird an that, essential Harry Potter quote. It's weird that it's become so associated with Dumbledore. Like people were sharing that around after the election, and it would like Which, had the quote, and it was just like M dash Albus Dumbledore. Yeah, who's a fictional character? I know, but like, who are we to talk? Because we talk about politics as it relates to Harry Potter constantly. No, yeah, it's just interesting that that line uh, caught on so much. I also like. I have to say, like, it's a kind of hackneyed line. <laughs> J.K. Rowling didn't write it. You can tell J.K. Rowling didn't write it because, like, she would have written a better line. I don't think that's a particularly interesting sentiment. If yeah. you only remember to turn on the light, like, what does that mean? If you think about that, that like, bit of wisdom, that, like, aphorism. I think it, I think it means that you have the power to create like to improve the situation. I know, but remember to turn on the light is like a really awkward way to put it. Well, you're it's so like down make- in the dumps that you forgot that you had a light switch there or a candle that you can snap your fingers and turn on if you're magic. Okay. I, I think it's a really cliche no, phrase. Funny. Yeah, you should have put it on a, I don't know. Now people like have it on mugs and stuff, which is where it belongs. <laughs> it doesn't belong in like one, one of, of like those, uh, yeah, like the a- great pieces of children's literature of all time. In calligraphy or whatever. Ugh, I know, but like on in Instagram calligraphy. <laughs> whatever. Actually, I think I'm like obsessed with those calligraphy videos. I really like watching people write in really pretty script on Instagram. But that is the kind of thing that they write in, like that. That's the quote that people write in those videos. Yeah. Um. Who's your Film unsung hero. Uh, you know, I think we kind of covered it. I love David Thewlis as Lupin. To me, he's Lupin. Like I think of 
Yeah. I don't always imagine the actors when I read the books. I try not to, you know, but he so embodies that character for me. Absolutely. So mine is Emma Thompson as Professor Trelawney. And actually, I sort of have an opposite thing. I, um, that's not who I picture when I read the character Professor Trelawney. Because she, she brings a really, really different interpretation to Trelawney. Trelawney is much funnier in the movie. (laughs) Like, there's that scene where she says all these, like, hilariously vicious things to Hermione in her, like, really funny, ethereal voice. My dear, from the first moment you stepped foot in my class, I sensed that you did not possess the proper spirit for the noble art of divination. No, you see, there, uh, you may be young in years, but the heart that beats beneath your bosom is as shriveled as an old maid's. Your soul as dry as the pages of the books to which you so desperately cleave. And then Hermione, like, storms out, and then Emma Thompson goes, Ooh, uh, did I say something? <laughs> yeah, she's great. She's extremely funny. I mean, obviously, she's a fucking international treasure. Like, Emma Thompson is good in any role, but I think she's particularly perfect. Okay, that's it for the movie. As we announced what actually ends up being two weeks ago, um, we're going to take a break. As evidenced by how late this episode is, this has gotten, like, a tiny bit overwhelming in our lives right now. There's a lot going on. We're going to keep making the quibbler, but... We need a couple weeks off. Yeah. So. People are graduating. I just started a new job. We're just, a lot is going on in the muggle world. As we mentioned last week, but I I do like, I think this is worth reiterating. So like you can kind of see behind the curtain a little bit. This is a lot of work. Like we put a fair amount of time and effort and energy into this project and we love it. It's one of the most fun things we've ever done, but it is um, a significant amount of work. So we're going to take a little break. Just a breather be a couple of weeks we're gonna try to come back in mid-may we'll keep you guys posted on all the social media so that's a good reason to follow us we gotta hit the gym and get swole because we're gonna be carrying around goblet of fire for the next few months which just in case anybody had forgotten is 734 fucking pages long (laughs) so when we come back, if you guys want to get a head start, when we come back with Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, we are going to be reading the first three chapters of the book, which are The Riddle House, ugh, which is like one of the great kind of standalone chapters in the whole series. Yeah. It's so horrifying. Okay, so The Riddle House, The Scar, and The Invitation in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. That will be hopefully the middle of May. Facebook.com slash Quibbler Podcast, Instagram and Twitter at Quibbler Podcast. We will keep y'all posted there. And via the newsletter, which you can find at tinyletter.com slash Quibbler Podcast. We'll still be like active on social media. Like we're definitely going to be around. We will probably be getting a little bit of a head start on the book, but we just need a couple weeks off. So please rate and review and um, subscribe to the podcast so you actually get it in a couple weeks when we come back. Also, if you're behind, this is a really good time to catch up. Also... If you're behind, you're probably not listening to this one. No, maybe you listened to the movie before That's you like, pro- got through the book. Fair enough. Here's another thing that this is a good time for. Tell a friend about this podcast, and then they can get pretty close to caught up by the time we restart. Yep. So find someone in your life who you know likes Harry Potter and... 
and you know has not picked up the color yet and um have them start and maybe they can catch up by the time we start book four all right see you guys in may yep we'll miss you thanks amigos well he's free we did it did what good night I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good.